Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today to the Mad Mamluks podcast. My name is Sarah, and I'm here on behalf of the Heroic Hearts organization. Um, and for those of you who don't know, HHO runs a lot of different initiatives simultaneously for war-torn communities like food baskets, winter aid, emergency relief. But our biggest initiative, and I would say definitely the most rewarding, is orphan sponsorship. And providing for orphans has always been the main focus and goal for the organization. And with that goal in mind, instead of holding a traditional fundraiser, we decided to do something a little bit different. So in May, we will be hosting a 5K run walk over in Wheaton at the Donata Forest Preserve, which is absolutely beautiful. And we really want this event to be a way to get people outdoors, doing something active for a good cause. And this is really different than the fundraisers we typically see in Chicago. And we think that this is going to be a really enjoyable event for the whole family. We've even talked to a few of the registered participants. And we've, we have like families where all three generations are participating, which is really exciting. Grandparents are going to be out walking. Parents are going to be out um, possibly running. And children will be participating in the 100-yard dash, which will take place immediately after the 5K. And I have to say that the 100-yard dash is so much fun for the kids, but even more fun for the parents to watch from the sidelines. So there really is something for everyone. We've got a lot of local companies who are going to be out there representing. We're going to have some cool prizes for runners. And most importantly, we're going to be out there as a community, taking action together and making a difference in the lives of hundreds of children who have really lost everything due to senseless wars. So the cause is just, it's totally worth all of us making a little bit of extra effort to wake up earlier on Saturday, May 13th. Join your community out in Wheaton to make a difference. So I ask all of you to please check out our Facebook page for the run. Um, It's just called the Heroic Hearts 5K. Get your family and friends on board. Help us with some marketing. um, Spread the word. And we're also looking for volunteers. So if you're interested in helping us out day of, you can email us at heroichearts5k at gmail.com. And um, please check out check us out on Facebook as soon as possible. And we hope to have you all on board. For more information on the 5k, you can also check out the Mad Mom Luke's show notes. And we'll see you on May 13th. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mom Luke's. I'm Mahi and I'm here with my co-hosts, Mort and Sim. Today, we've got a very special friend on the show today, Asim Ahmed who is a pilot and a history buff. You know, we've known Asim for several years, a good friend of ours, a good friend of the show, and many of y'all may not know him, but we felt like he's an interesting guy that we wanted to share with the rest of our listeners. And, you know, I just think that's a, you know, part of the platform that the Mad Mom Looks is about. We have mentioned before, we are not about always presenting people who are going to be like the most famous people, etc. But we want people who are going to present uh, engaging, interesting conversations. So, awesome, first of all. Uh, Jazakallah khair for coming into the show today. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa Thank you so much for having me, everyone. So, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as your uh, background, as far as schooling goes, and like um, how you got involved into history. Uh, you know, I've always loved history. Usually, there's uh, there's the people who, <laughs> who lean towards humanities and the liberal arts and, uh, and the people who end up being uh, engineers and accountants and make all the money, right? So, <laughs> I was one of those people who always, uh, history was second nature to me throughout school, going back to grade school. And then, uh, you know, I, I was actually briefly a journalism major. Um, and then I just went back to my first love, which was history uh, in college. And uh, most uh, pre-law people are actually history majors. So, it's a very common pre-law uh awesome's one of those dudes that i always wanted to be 
he went and did what he wanted instead of taking the safe approach that I ended up taking by going into IT and uh, you know, just doing the safe thing. All the all the like parents are like, "Oh, you got to be a doctor, engineer, yeah. right?" <laughs> no, he 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 went and yeah. became a pilot after nine eleven, right, Austin? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, which a lot of people still, uh, you know, they get taken aback by that and, and quite so shocked. T- so, so talk about that for a little bit. Like, what what made you? What drove you to become a pilot after nine eleven? <laughs> Well, I was going to do it before 9-11. I wasn't going to let that stop me, <laughs> essentially. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who never really truly grew up. Uh, yeah. You know, I wanted to be like Luke Skywalker flying Beggar's Canyon or like <laughs> Maverick on, to- on uh, Top Gun, you know? Nice, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to let... Uh, Dude, Top Gun was you know? one of the most influential <laughs> movies for me as growing up. I actually had called um, a Navy recruiter to uh-huh. my house. And my dad flipped when he called and setting up the schedule. Uh, to come visit us and talk to us about the, the Navy's uh, uh, fighter jet program. And my dad's like, no son of mine's going to join the <laughs> Army. It was nothing about being anti-American. It was just like some, he had other expectations sure. of me that he wanted me to pursue. But um, what happened was, yeah, I, that dream ended up crashing and I went into IT. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the story of every Chicago Daisy. Yeah, you can live exactly. vicariously through me, sir. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, talk to us a little bit about that parental pushback. Like when you said, I'm going to do history, right? You know, I remember a lot of like friends of mine growing up, they were, they told their parents something similar. I want to study philosophy or history. And they're like, oh, that's fine, but you're just going to pay for yourself now. Like we're not supporting you anymore. <laughs> and that, causes this predicament where like, okay, I'm going to do engineering. If I can get college paid for, which is a big deal, yeah, I'll do computer science or engineering and I'll hate my life after, but it's all good. Like, how did you deal with that? Well, I just didn't tell my parents. <laughs> That's how I dealt with it. Uh, well, I did try to be a computer science major in the middle there too, between journalism and and history to try to keep them happy. And I wasn't happy. Um, and I basically concealed it, for, which is how, honestly, many people from our culture unfortunately deal with these things uh they we we end up uh, having uh, to cope with it somehow you know so so i just didn't tell them just because i knew they'd be disappointed so i just kind of told them later after the fact so and, you- and they weren't happy about it but you know they but then of course then i told them well i have a backup plan i want to actually be a pilot which is a real career so then they kind of came on board <laughs> did you go to one of those uh, infamous flight schools in florida i did go to an infamous flight school oh in my god <laughs> any interesting story uh, you know uh, anyone know anyone you know in particular they well you know they they had a lot of foreign contracts including saudi pilots yeah, yeah. Um, in fact that really hurt them financially because wow. all the saudi pilots they they all took their business to uh, Europe mostly, yeah. um, Canada and places like that after 9-11. So. Wow. And, and, you know, in town, I would talk to, you know, the barber or the people at the restaurants and they'd all say, oh, we really miss those guys. Because, yeah. Because uh, they kept the economy afloat, you know. So Yeah. So did you encounter any challenges? Like when you enrolled and considered that you were Muslim and after 9-11, like was there anything um, that particularly stood out when you were attending the school? No. I mean, I had to... You know, like going away to Juma, I would just call it a prayer meeting. I wouldn't tell them I have to go to Juma khutbah at one, you know, please. I'd say, I, I got to go to a prayer meeting. So in the South, I don't know if they thought that meant I was going to go do, you know, sing gospel music somewhere with somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sing Kumbaya with somebody. I just call it a prayer meeting. And then yeah. I went, uh, in Ramadan, I would just, you know, disappear at iftar time or try to schedule my, uh, uh, my flying around that. How so. does Ramadan work while you're flying? 
Uh, I still fast because I feel like the, you know, yes, you're a Musafir, but then, you know, it's my job. I'm not just a Musafir yeah. temporarily. You know, it's an actual full-time job for me. And also there's the Barakah of Ramadan, right? We all know about that. I mean, yeah. you know, you can, yeah, sure, if you miss, you can make up, but then I'd be ma- making up half the month. Right, right. And that's a lot of fast to make up. And again, How many hours blessings. are you fasting? Well, or in what schedule are you using? I mean, I'm, uh, for generally for Suhoor, I'm almost always on the ground. Uh, so... I just, you know, stop, you know, eating and drinking. I wake up early, of course, and and uh, stop based on the local time. And then I actually do the same thing for iftar. I try to be on the ground for that because I do domestic flights. But if I'm not, then I just uh, do it by the local time of where I'm at. So. But you stay domestic pretty much. So I pretty much stay easier. domestic. So it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know what I'd do if I had to do long haul. It would be yeah. a whole different story. Yeah. So, But it's still a challenge. Like Ramadan for a lot of us is, you know, especially the first few days, you know, I always see... You know, stories of our friends falling asleep at work and power naps. And you can't do that when you're flying, right? Yeah. Like when you're in flight, is there like a chill time or do you just, are you on it like focused in, like dialed in the whole way? No, no, there's absolutely, uh, you know, everyone. Uh, what are the that. limitations of autopilot is what we want to know. <laughs> yeah, autopilot. Yeah, how much work do you actually do? <laughs> we still we still do a lot of work. We, we put in a lot of, uh, we have a lot of time off, but when we're on duty, they can be up to 15-hour days sometimes. Now, of course, that's not 15 hours in the airplane in the cockpit. Usually, our flight time is capped at about eight hours. Um, we can go a little bit. Of, obviously, if we have a delay airborne, it's like, oh, no, we're illegal. You're already in the air. What are you going to do? It's like, okay, yeah, we have to keep flying. But, um, yeah, we, we work hard when we have to. There's busy times. You know, People say flying is you know hours of boredom punctuated by minutes of sheer terror. Uh, when I say terror, I mean like really excitement. Like, you oh, know, okay, yeah, really you got to be very careful. Yes, I have terror. to be careful with that word. That's why I'm uh, prefacing <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I mean by terror. So uh, it's uh, yeah, no, of course, autopilot is just a it's just a computer. It's garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So it's Can, only does, a, does autopilot work with landing? Uh, in under certain circumstances, it does. You have but to. But normally, you would probably do it manual, right? Or no? yeah, normally every landing, uh, you know, especially. The actual touchdown part, yeah, and also taxi off. No autopilot can actually taxi on the ground, so at most it might be able to touch touch down and land. But then you have to take control. Is that the real measuring so. tool of a good pilot? The way he lands, because that's that's for, when I really want to. The general compl- public, it is. Yeah. But I compare flying to it's almost like those gymnastics routines you see in the Olympics. You know, right, right. you can do everything right, and then but they still judge you on that dismount when you when you actually land on the mat, and then if you bounce or if you like get all yeah. squirrely then people dock points yeah. I, and that's how landings are you know? you know for me i don't really care as long as i'm in one piece yes no. that's how you should look at it you're no. safe you're able to walk away from the airplane no i send know? the compliments <laughs> you know how you send the compliments to the chef after a good meal as i send the compliments to the the pilot through one of the hostesses yeah for after a landing i'm like my compliments to the oh, pilot. Actually, yeah. we appreciate that. And in yeah. fact, you can actually duck your head in, or sometimes, of course, we stand right outside the flight deck. And uh, you a bad landing will scare me, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to me, I have the landing. I'm not sure what bothers me the most about being in the air and I never get used to is turbulence. Oh, yeah. Turbulence is something I've flown so many times and I will never get used to turbulence. And I had the most crazy story one time where, like, you know, the, literally I thought I was going to die and I saw this guy next to me that was. Like, basically, he was freaking out. Like, freaking out. Like It's serious business, yeah. Yeah, and when I saw him freaking out, though, I started laughing. 
for some reason, I don't know why, just the way he freaked out. And the guy thought the whole way that I was a crazy psychopath because like, we're about to die and you're laughing. I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it, but you were making some crazy faces. But at point being, it's turbulence I can never get used to. Why can't they just uh, go higher in the air to avoid turbulence? Uh, you, you can't. It's not always a question so of altitude. So what is turbulence? What, what is it? Why do we have turbulence? Usually it's associated with uh, varying uh, wind speed and direction. On the ground, it's called wind shear. You technically you have turbulence on the ground too. You know when it gets real choppy right before you touch down. That's not turbulence anymore. At that point, it's more wind shear. Uh, when when uh, you have to think of the atmosphere as an ocean, right? Air they they call it hydrodynamics. Uh, these laws apply in the atmosphere as well. So uh, you have to think of it as you're you're a boat or a submarine more. So these are waves. These are waves. Yeah, waves of air coming. There's jet stream, of course, is a famous name for turbulence. And then you have, of course, pressure. Make, is a big factor. You have convective turbulence, which is one of the most common types. That's associated with thunderstorms. So that's the kind that really rocks you. That That's easy, though. You see a thunderstorm, you avoid it. And the thunderstorms are easy to see and avoid. But the problem is when you have clear air turbulence, you get a perfectly clear day. Or mountain turbulence, like if you're flying by Denver or something over the Rockies, there's always turbulence. So that's you have exactly to think where of, this happened to me. Yeah. We were going to Nevada and this is what happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Basically you have to think of it as waves of air crashing against the mountains. You you can't see them. Uh-huh. But you can see the evidence. Like if you see a certain type of cloud, it's called a lenticular cloud. If you see lenticular clouds, you know it's mm. gonna be choppy. So well, you see uh, cumulonimbus, you know, the big mushroom shaped yeah. clouds or Huge uh, popcorn kernel type clouds. Right, right. You know it's going to be choppy around those or anvil shaped. Of are, course, are, so. are lightning still a, a problem for? Yeah, I mean, I remember those old 70s movies where the lightning strike hits the engine the out there the and then the yeah. mayday, mayday. And then you're. Lightning is, 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 still a, problem? is a threat. Uh, it does. I personally have not been struck by lightning that I know of anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's not necessarily a major emergency. It all depends on where on the aircraft the lightning hits. Yeah. You know, um, if it hits in a critical critical area and you lose lose your electrics, then that's obviously an emergency. If your right. screens go dark and the lights go out, <laughs> yeah. you need to. That's an emergency. You need to land and get on the ground. But if it, I mean, just like a building, you know, studded with, uh, uh, you know, you've got your your lightning rods on buildings, and we right. have our static strips. Basically, yeah. we call them static wicks. Yeah. These are these little wicks. Yeah. Uh, some of you may be familiar and you may have seen them. Uh, you, they're all over the the trailing edge of uh, the rudder and on the wings as well. You'll see them. And, you know, they're there to help us dissipate that lightning. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we, homes also have that too, a way to yeah, dissipate uh, absolutely, the electricity yeah. after yeah, your yeah. home gets hit by lightning. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, all right. Uh, awesome. Let's segue back to your history stuff. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today is because, you know, this Mad Mum look right here, I don't even think I know what a Mamluk is. I just heard it was a Russian slave <laughs> that, that like pathetic. stops some Mongols. You know what I'm saying? Um, can you educate you us? Can, please educate the Mad Mamluks on the, the, you know who the Mamluks really were. Absolutely, I uh, I'm very. Mamluk Vision, pay uh, pay attention very closely because we're going to be asking some <laughs> trivia quizzes later. Absolutely, we might have well, some prizes. Mamluk uh, pl- plural is Mamalik actually, so we have the ma- Mad Mamalik here with me. Um, but Mamluk just means something owned, and it's very similar to uh, another word which is a uh, Ghulam. In fact, uh, some of us even have that as our uh, in our names. Uh, people actually use that as their name, and Ghulam was was similar to Mamluk, and it's some something or someone usually owned. So 
property. We'll call it what it is. Slavery, you know, obviously was an institution that lasted a long time, both in the West and in the Islamic lands. So uh, there were there were slaves uh, in uh, going back to the Abbasid period. This is, of course, one of those many uh, pre-Islamic practices which Islam adopted, which, of course, it's common, especially from the Persian Empire. Um, so it's not a, not something that Muslims invented, military slaves, uh, but we uh, we absolutely uh, embrace that policy, and uh, and well, well, it's lasted a thousand years in Islam. Actually, it goes goes back to the Abbasid period, all the way to the almost the end of the uh, Ottoman period. So, well, how how did the Mamluks even enter the Muslim world? I understood the Mamluks as a steppe people. They were st- uh, slaves that were. Uh, imported into the Muslim world uh, from the the steppe land, and let's uh, explain what steppe is also. Sure, the Central Asian steppes. They're these. Uh, you can think of them as uh, uh, these big plateaus and prairies, almost kind of like the American prairies, except they would be, they would gradually, you know, change in elevation. So they weren't steep like the mountains, but so they call them steppes. So uh, and so, it's, it's very important Asia. people understand the steppe because the steppe is a very rough climate and people yeah. are are grown up Extremes very hard in yeah, yes, yeah absolutely and uh so you have to be a tough individual to live in these cl- yeah these yeah and which the steps, is, you know you're you're living off yak milk in these uh you know you're using uh, your horse for everything you know your horse and your herd to survive everything comes from those animals you're you're nomadic generally there's very few cities on the steppe uh, largely nomadic people, whether you're Turkish or Tatar or Mongol, these are the famous peoples of the steppes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, and this goes back, uh, of course, to the Roman period, where you may have heard of the Huns. Or, right. They were steppe people too. Yeah. You know, and and that's the thing. The steppes are the source of these people, who often are unsettled people, uh, and nomadic. And you know, it, these these settled cities they make tempting targets for steppe people to raid. So you become a raider right. <laughs> at that point. So. So, so the the Mamluks were a step people, and it's important that we understand that because their main adversary, we later on end up learning, were the Mongols. So, who are also step people, and uh, before the Mongols and the Mamluks had even even met, uh, the Mong- the Mongols had hadn't been stopped at all. So let's 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 rewind a little bit and start from the beginning and how uh, the Mamluks ended up in. Or, or these these steppe people ended up in the Muslim world. Sure, um, they initially were largely what we call Turk. Now Turk, almost like a Saracen. You have heard of the word Saracen, which it's well, the, the Muslims called all the European, you know, uh, lighter skinned European Christians. We call them all Franks. That was our catch all term, right? Yeah. Frank or Afrange or Frangi even. We didn't use the word infidel? You know? No. Shocking, right? Yeah. Infidel. Wow. No, no. We generally call them Afrange or Frangi or just Frank, you know. And uh, and they had their words for us. One was, of course, Saracen and the other was Turk. Now, Turk became this catch-all term for a lot of these steppe people that we just talked right. about. Uh, and most, the majority of the Mamluks were basically Turks. Uh, they were basically uh, Kipchak Turks uh, initially from uh, the Golden Horde area. Now, if you heard Golden Horde, that's a whole different long subject, but that was one of the Mongol kingdoms. The Mongols initially, of course, we all know about Genghis Khan, but after he died, they fragmented into basically four different 
Because the empire became so large. So large, absolutely. So there's the Ilkhans, like Hulagu. We've all heard of Hulagu, of course. That was one of them, the Ilkhans. They sacked Baghdad. And then you have the Chugtais. The Chugtais were the ancestors of Timur and and, and, uh, the Mughals, of course, who later ruled India. Uh, The Chugtai was like right in Central Asia. And then uh, you had the Golden Horde. And the Golden Horde were among the first to embrace Islam, actually. Yeah. And uh, and they were more like uh, the Caucasus and yeah. uh, Ukraine area more. Like and they, they, kind of, they kind of also worked to protect the Muslim world from their other brothers. Absolutely. Ironically, uh, the the Mongols, uh, one of their bigger civil wars was over this issue. They, they, the uh, Muslim Mongols, the Golden Horde, allied with, with their cousins, the Mamluks, against the Ilkhans, which, uh, which were, again, the people who attacked Baghdad and, and ended the Abbasid Empire. Who were also allied with the Crusaders, so yeah. you had this four-way system, yeah. uh, two on two. So, uh, so, what 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 time period did the uh, Mamluks first enter the Muslim world? Let's say there. This is before was, they even became rulers. Absolutely, uh, that goes back to actually the 10th century. Uh, so, in Al Hijra, it would be about uh, you know the third century Al Hijra. So, we're talking about the 900s um, uh, during the Abbasid period, they became uh, the uh, the Abbasids became uh, very dependent upon them. In fact, in, so dependent that that's one of the reasons why their power in Baghdad started to dissolve because they relied so much on these military slaves. So it started in the 10th century, and uh, and of course Mamluks were around all the way until the 19th uh, century. So, but that was the first period yeah. the Abbasids, and then almost every subsequent major dynasty in Islam. Used military cavalry. Yeah, even the, the like the Janissaries and with the Turks. Absolutely, that was the Ottomans. Ottomans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, how did they they end up getting power? Um, they the Mamluks gained power in several places. They the first dynasty, Muslim dynasty in India was also a Mamluk dynasty. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The first Mamluk dynasty, and in fact, uh, talk, speaking of, of uh, defeating the Mongols again, uh, the Mongols tried to invade India as well. And they were defeated again by by their Turkish cousins in India. Also, we all know about uh, how they were defeated in uh, in Jalut, but they were also defeated in India. Was by, this closer to like Chittagong so. and Bangladesh that area? No, or? no, in 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 Delhi area. <coughs> oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Wow. There was uh, uh, they were called the Khiljis, Khiljis and Tughluq. They were all Turkish, basically. Wow. The first Muslim dynasties who ruled India long before the. I'm talking about 400 years before the, the Mughals. No, the Mughals. Oh, well. We all know about the Mughals in India. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 400 years before the Mughals ever came around, there were there were the the original Turks and wow. uh, the 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 Turkish Delhi Sultanates, I should say. And the first one was called the Mamluk Dynasty of India. Oh. So, so some of the some modern Indian people are descendants of these folks. You absolutely, say. yeah, yeah. In fact, in some parts of India, again, many of the the Hindu natives of India, just like the Westerners use Turk for Muslim, in some parts of India, even to this day, when a Hindu says Turk, he means Muslim. Wow. Because they associated that word so closely, yeah. So, cool. So um, now, now I understand the original Mamluk founder was a, a woman by the name of Shajarad Dur. Well, not the original Mamluk. You now we're getting to yeah. the Egyptian Sultanate. Yeah, is where, is where we're going. Yeah. Right? So there are the Mamluks were in India, and then the Mamluks were, of course, in the Abbasid yeah. Empire, the the Abbasid uh, Khilafah also. Uh, but now, okay, getting to the famous Mamluks of history, which is the, the Sultanate. Yeah. You're right. That was the, the Ayyubids, right? Right, right. before yeah. the Mamluks, you had the Ayyubids. Everybody knows the Ayyubids because Salahuddin was, of course, the first uh, major uh, Ayyubid. And, and, and this his time, dynasty. at this time, the Muslim empire is, there's the Abbasids in Iraq area, right? Before it was sacked. This is right before the sacking, yeah. actually. Like years, a handful of years. Yeah. yeah. And the Fatima had just recently been... 
The, well, Salahuddin is the one who yeah, effectively exactly. ends the right. Fatimids. You're correct. Um, but now is it true the Fatimids had some allegiances with Crusaders as well too? Like at that time, uh, it was very complicated. We, we I could spend all day okay. talking about the Crusades, but yeah. but yes, there were Crusaders. Spain was the same way. Muslim Spain was the same way too. Uh, you had at times they were adversaries, at times they were allies, and you had Christian kings allying with Muslim rulers against fellow Christians and Muslim rulers allying against, uh, you know, with, with so the Christians. just one against, big power grab. Yes, because you had the Byzantines, of course, the, the Orthodox Christians up in Constantinople, who also at times allied with the Muslims because they didn't like the Latin Catholics coming in uh, yeah. on their crusades and, and, uh, and disrupting the status quo in the Middle East at times. Too. So, so when people say Mamluk they, in today's time, they're mainly referring to the Mamluks in Egypt. Right. Absolutely, yeah. They're talking about the Mamluk dynasty. They're the most generally. famous. Mamluks. They are. They're the most famous, uh, and they actually ruled and and put their stamp on Egypt. So, so most tell of us a little bit about Arab. how 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 that came to be. How how did the Mamluks get power in Egypt? In Egypt, it's uh, as uh, I was mentioning uh, the uh, uh, the Ayyubid dynasty of Salahuddin. Now that only really lasted for less than maybe about fifty years, say fifty sixty years. Um, uh, Saladin and then his brother Aladil and then his sons Kamil and and a handful more. There were there were less less than ten Ayyubid sultans. The last one, uh, Asalih Ayyub, basically was fighting off the Crusaders because this was the seventh Crusade. French king Louis the Ninth had invaded Egypt, right? And he occupied Damietta, which is a famous Nile uh, Delta city, and then he occupied Mansoura, uh, you know. And in Mansoura, they it was a hard pressed battle, but his Mamluks. Now, at this point, they weren't rulers. They weren't the sultans of Egypt. They were just, like like I said, going back 200 years to the Abbasid, they were just their cavalry. Because the Mamluks, you have to think of them as uh, the mounted knights of Islam, right? Everybody knows about the Templar knights and the knights hospitaller, the knights of St. John, and all these knight, these orders. Yeah. Well, in Islam, uh, we had heavy, heavy cavalry too in Islamic right. history. And they were the Mamluks generally. So they would go where they were needed. Yeah, they were the mounted cavalry, uh, you know, who... Uh, just like they weren't always just guys with lances, they they often were, but they were also known for their uh, archery skills, mm -hmm. horseback archers. Right, right. Just like their Mongol cousins. That makes yeah. sense because they're the Mongols. Right? Absolutely. Just archers. like their Mongol cousins, yeah. they were no. Unlike the Western, so they must have been expert knights. horse fighters as well too. Though. Absolutely. Unlike the Western knights, were generally not archers. Right. They just had the very heavy, heavy armor, armor and a lot of and the really yeah. long lance, like the jousting type knights we see. Mm -hmm. They weren't known for archery, but. The Mamluks were known for both very precise archery and had heavy armor. And this was one of their greatest techniques, right? They would cause a yes. storm of arrows and that would Absolutely, cause yeah. disarray among... And they were able to do those feint attacks where they would feint, like get you to attack and then they would retreat and get you to keep chasing them until they got you in the position they wanted. And then they would actually do a pincer movement and surround you. And that was a classic technique for... For those types of soldiers. So now Henry VIII is attacking. No, there's the, actually sorry, Louis the Ninth. I'm sorry, Louis the France. Emperor. You're thinking of Henry VIII with all his wives. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, France that, was attacking the. Yes, this was Egypt. the Seventh Crusade. Of course, yeah. you, you can imagine. I mean, just think about that time in Muslim history. I mean, we talk about how bad things are now, but this is a period of history. But imagine we had seven different Crusades launched at the heart of Islam. Plus, you had the Mongols attacking us from the... I mean, honestly, as bad as things are now, I, I don't think we can compare it. And then you had to fellow how, Muslims also... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You. So, um, but yeah, so it, in this context, uh, context uh, you had Baybars, who was very famous, of course, and yeah. one of the, the, uh, the most uh, prominent Mamluks. He and uh, Qutuz were all, at this point, they weren't rulers. They were just uh, emirs, you know, very... Uh, it was almost a feudal system. Uh, and uh, this last Ayyubid Sultan... Used uh, used them effectively to uh, 
uh, to defeat the Crusaders, and they were defeated. So, so were they, were they always stationed in Egypt, or did he call them from outside? No, they. In fact, the Mamluks early on, of course, they they were dominant in places like Syria and Iraq, uh, and it's only under Salahuddin's time when he moved them. His uncle Shirku, who was a very famous soldier himself too, uh, Shirku had a whole platoon of Mamluks and who helped who helped uh, the Ayyubids uh, defeat the Fatimids, right? And displace them and then uh, establish the... And then there were Mamluks who fought at the famous Battle of Hittin, too, right? We all know about, about the Battle of Hittin, Saladin's victory over the Crusaders. I mean, yeah. a lot of the mounted knights who were fighting against the Templar knights were Mamluks. Mm. So the Mamluks had been around and were well-known. And they were generally, like I said, Turks, Kipchak Turks. Uh, but yeah, this this incident with the Seventh Crusade, that's when they finally, the last Ayyubid Sultan, Saleh Ayyub, he died, and they actually concealed his death at first because they thought, okay, well, we're already under attack, and the Crusaders are occupying our land, so we have to hide it. So they hid it, and one of his concubines, uh, Shajarat Adur, which means Tree of Pearls, uh, she actually ended up uh, marrying... I thought, she, I thought she was her first wife, or no? Well, I don't remember if she was a concubine or a wife. Yeah. Uh, but she, I think she was a concubine who became his wife. I think, yeah. She th- bore him that, a child. That was and, often yeah. what happened yeah, right. <laughs> in these cases, she right? She bore him a child so, and she became his wife. So, she, uh, yeah, she she was actually uh, de facto the first ruler, the transitional ruler of the Mamluks. So right. Many historians consider her to be the first, which is interesting for a female. So uh, Because he, he had apparently passed away or whatnot. Yeah, she, she summoned his son, Turancha who would have been the next in line to be the Ayyubid Sultan. But Turan Shah was, was not popular with the Mamluks, so he was actually... Uh, it's controversial, just like many of these killings, but they say that he was killed by his own Mamluks. You know? okay. So they were often kingmakers, right? And this goes right. back to the Abbasid period as well. Is that The problem is they're military slaves, but later they become so powerful that they, they become the kingmakers. If they right. don't like the, the Sultan or the Khalifa in charge, they say, well, we don't like you, and they'll they kill you so True. and they did this in ottoman times as well with the right. janissaries so so that's when uh, when turan shah was killed that's when basically there was one mamluk again who who took power briefly and then uh, sultan qutuz muzaffar qutuz became the first really so t- powerful t- 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 tell us about muzaffar qutuz because i think this is where the uh i think most people highlight the mamluks against the um the, the, Mongol, the Mongol invasion right? yeah absolutely. so tell us a little bit about um muzaffar and how he came into power well, Muzaffar Qutuz, he uh, he's became Sultan Qutuz, uh, basically the third Sultan uh, of the Mamluks. And right away, he had they had repulsed the Crusader invasion, but it wasn't over because you know when Saladin uh, had defeated them at the Battle of Hittin, he still famously you know he left Acre, you know that town. Uh, if you know your Crusader history, that was one of the biggest mistakes he made because that enabled King Richard the Lionheart to land because as long as they had one port. Right on the Mediterranean, which they did. That was the one port. So he he managed to defeat them and remove them from all of their uh, which which uh, included Antioch, Edessa, all of these counties, right, and Jerusalem itself. He managed to defeat them and 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 uh, lay siege to them and win, with the, with the exception of Acre. So that's when you know the the uh, the Crusaders came in Acre, and then again they expanded. So so this is about fifty years after the time of Saladin. Now the Crusaders were back in many of these places in Antioch, in uh, in Tyre. You know these places are in. In Lebanon and uh, the Lebanese and uh, Middle East, Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean coast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the Mamluks actually were still trying to fight the Crusaders. At the same time, they heard about the shock in 1258, which was the sack of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. You know, this was just a. So the Mamluks, you can date them to about 1250. So just eight years later, they're very new. Eight years is nothing. Brand new uh, dynasty. 
You know, they, they, the transition from the Ayyubids to the Mamluks was relatively seamless. So the Ayyubids ruled Syria yeah. and uh, Egypt. And uh, with the exception of those few coastal towns ruled by the, the Crusaders, they, they controlled that area. But now you heard about Hulagu coming in and 1258, he sacks Baghdad. So that's a huge shock. And uh, that's when uh, so this famous letter... Let's talk, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment mm-hmm. for some of the listeners. Why was the sacking of Baghdad a shock to the Muslim world? Like, What was the significance of Baghdad at this and time? And what was the relationship with the Abbasids to uh, the, um, the Ayyubids and the Abbasids? Because sometimes people mistakenly think that the Ayyubids were their own caliphate and the Abbasids were their own. But uh, as I understand it, the Ayyubids had paid homage to and had given their uh, what the bayah yeah, Chew. absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. the 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 Abbasids, uh, as as far as political power goes, it had been like I said about two hundred years since they held real political power, which is uh, about the nine hundreds uh, A.D. Um, but uh, you know, one way was on the the two main ways were currency, so the coins would be struck in the name of that ruler, and uh, and the Juma Khatibs. The Khatibs would would uh, you know every Friday. Even if you were in a place like Cairo or Damascus, which may not actually be under the political control of the Abbasid ruler in Baghdad, but they would still mention his name, the Abbasid, uh, Al-Mutasim or Al-Mutawakkil right. or somebody like that. They would still mention his name, even though it may be ruled by, you know, Nuruddin Zengi or or Mamluk Sultan like Berbars, you know, or or Qutuz. They would still name the Abbasid Khalif. Uh, so that showed the unity of the Sunni Muslim world, at least. Right. Is that okay? He may not have political power. And the Seljuks did this too. And even the Ottomans did for a time. Uh, until they had declared themselves, of course, the new caliphs. So right. the new khalifas. So so the Ayyubids also, in fact, at the Battle of Hittin, and they actually also flew the black flag, you know, the famous black flag of the Abbasids. Ah. So they had their own flags and the Abbasids had their own contingent sent too. So mm. they didn't have much power, but uh, but Baghdad still held a symbolic value, right? Everybody knows about Harun al-Rashid and al-Mansur and uh, all these stories of of the glory of Baghdad. So, so that's why it was a symbol. contained a lot of uh, knowledge and information. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was I a mean, standard for learning at that time. Yeah. Outside of Cairo and Damascus, it was, uh, you know, which were, actually Cairo was still relatively, of course, it was Fatimid for a while here uh, for, for about a century or so, um, which was, of course, the, the Shia, the only Shia Khilafah, the Fatimid Khilafah. So all that left in the Middle East, as far as uh, the original centers of power, was just Damascus and Baghdad. And Baghdad was, of course, uh, you know, the capital of the Muslim world. If not politically, then still culturally and, and economically and many other ways. So that's why it was such a big shock when Hulagu sacked it. And famously, you know, the rivers ran red and black from blood and and the ink of the books. We all we've all heard these yeah. stories. So okay. So so now we hear now. So now the Mamluks know that Baghdad has been sacked, and now they're they're taken aback by this. So now what happens? At this point, well, they—that uh, was Chinggis's Chinggis Khan's plan was to basically uh, conquer the whole known world. Uh, so he sends uh, Hulagu, who's his uh, grandson actually, and uh, he sends Hulagu to uh, continue pushing through Persia, which he does. Uh, and now they they enter and they sack parts of Anatolia, which is uh, of course Turkey now, and then they go into the middle, you know the Levant, uh, Bilad Sham. So now they they uh, attack uh, Damascus. They lay siege to all these cities: Aleppo, Damascus, and uh, and they've all heard that Egypt is like the big, you know, stronghold of Islam now. So they send this famous letter, and Qutuz is the one who gets this letter about you know our armies are coming for you. Just surrender, and it's actually a very evocative letter. It's uh, 
and and it would make anybody else shake in their boots when they when they hear this letter that Hulagu sent to Qutuz. But his response, uh, which was very effective, was he beheaded uh, the the two Mongols who sent him the letter and he put their heads on pikes. Yeah. On the gates of uh, Cairo. Yeah, I so, mean the letter was very offensive. It it basically told the the, the caliph that he'll be tossed around like a lion and <laughs> it was a very uh, humiliating letter and uh normally i think emissaries are considered um you know sacred and you'd never touch yeah. them but he, he felt like he needed to send a message back to him uh, showing him that they're not scared of him yeah and uh, he, he killed the emissaries and he put them on uh, their heads on a spike and sent it back sending a message and that was the worst thing to do yeah because absolutely. it really enraged the mongols and um and and it really released the the full wrath of the mongols on onto baghdad but it was also like an intimidation point right absolutely uh, you know yeah. the thing of it is i was talking to a friend of mine who had who had studied overseas and they were talking about the uh you know the fiqh of jihad and that's stuff they studied and one of the things is the ruling on mutilating a body and this is the scholars are unanimous in that it's not permissible except if there's some kind of maslaha or greater benefit and they said one of them is to as a way to intimidate the the enemy so it looks like that's kind of the situation that happened well, here. i mean i think you have to understand the tone of the letter too it wasn't like a, a letter of negotiation or to talk they literally right. just sent a threatening letter it was an ultimatum they, yeah. they, they wanted to basically wipe out and i think they even made religious references into the letter as well too uh at a fun point no. I forgot yeah they basically that. say that your god will not save you yeah and yeah. so they, they they basically humiliated Anyone that read that letter. Yeah. And it was meant to be intimidating to the Muslims and not even a point of negotiation. So um, they were very tough in their in their methods of... Uh, it was yeah. funny. It was very aggressive. Genghis Khan, didn't he used to say to the Muslims, like, I am... Even though he didn't believe in Allah, he was like, I am God's... I'm your God's punishment. Of oh, yeah, yeah. The flail of God. Yeah. They used to call the Mongols the flail of God. For both the Christians and the Muslims, because yeah. they were equal opportunity killers. The Mongols, they, you know, they, they attacked uh, both Muslims and Christians. So... Uh, yeah, they they said that uh, they're the punishment for 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 the sins that they've been doing. And yeah, it was just a psychological. It's not that they believed it; it was just a psychological attack. It was effective. It was more yeah. of a mockery that, like, yeah. you know, you believe in this, and so I'm going to use this to, to to intimidate you with your own belief. You know, yeah. like me, I, I could care less about it, but I'm just gonna, yeah. even your God, basically your God's forsaking you. You know, what I mean, he right. shows me over you. You know, basically that type of mentality. So now, now after this happens, Baghdad is they attack Baghdad. Right. And now um, Baghdad has collapsed. And I, I, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it only took the Mongols like two weeks to totally like. To yes. Sack all of Baghdad. Absolutely. It, it, and they absolutely. destroyed the books. They yep. I, I even heard stories where um, the Muslims were so terrified of them coming into Baghdad that they were actually like hiding on the rooftops. They were hiding in graves like they were. And there was an actually interesting story about the Mongols where even after the point where the Mongols left, they had left some people behind. I think a Mongol woman. I heard the story, so I'm not sure how true it is or verified, but uh, apparently the Muslims started coming out of their hiding spots, and one guy ends up going to the masjid, and there's a Mongol woman that's looting there. Mm -hmm. And um, she tells him, you know, stay right here so I can bring my axe to, to, to yeah, finish you. I've and he was so too. terrified that he actually stood there and waited for her to come back and execute. Is, is that, is that she, really a true story? I've, I've heard of this story, too. A lot of these are probably apocryphal, almost... Uh, 
you know, uh, make, Ex- a little bit of exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. there's a lot of exaggeration as that's well. That's one I couldn't verify. But, but it's just it's yeah. almost something you tell a little child to scare them to sleep. But uh, yeah, but that's how terrifying they were. They were yeah. the stuff of nightmares for the for the Muslim world, for yeah. the whole world. At for that the whole time. world. In yeah. in many ways, people say that Islam, you know, technologically never recovered. You know, because Baghdad was the pinnacle. Yeah. It was yeah. the capital of the world at that point. Yeah, they said so. they said that the riverbanks bled. Like yeah, blue for days because yeah. of all the books they and they. I think Absolutely. they use it to make a, as a as a path to get yeah. it really across or something. They use it just for simply just as a tool yeah. to get across. Well, as far yeah, as far as our scientific uh, progress, that we were the pinnacle, cutting edge, and then in many ways we never recovered after that. So, right. so so at that point, um, Baghdad been sacked. The the news of of Baghdad getting sacked reached the Egypt, and and how did the the Mamluks start preparing? Uh, what 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 was the dynamics of what was going on in Egypt at that point? Well, in Egypt, first, they still had to rely on uh, consolidating their power in Syria. So, like I said, they had to make sure that they wouldn't get attacked in their flank by the Crusaders, who were still there, like I said, on the coastal cities. Mm-hmm. So they were very afraid that the Crusaders would come back. They had just defeated them, but they had already launched seven Crusades. So who's to stop an eighth or a ninth Crusade? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they actually did negotiate with some of those... Uh, uh, the coastal crusaders, and they actually got permission to cross their territory and basically cease fire agreements with the crusaders. Like, you know, we can you can resupply in our land, you know, because you always have to be able to resupply, you know, uh, sources of water and food and everything. So you can resupply and we won't attack you. Temporary truth. Because even though the crusaders hated, of course, you know, the Muslims and wanted to retake Jerusalem, they all realized their common enemy at this point was the Mongols. Yeah. Uh, not that the Crusaders hadn't tried. They tried, you know, you may have heard of these stories of Prester John. So Prester John, they thought was going to be a Mongol. So they thought, oh, maybe maybe we can convert them or maybe he's Prester John. So he's going to be our ally, uh, you know, against the uh Prester the John is uh, like a, a saint or... He's basically like a this myth- myth- mythic, mythical figure. Eastern king that that the Catholic uh, Western European powers were always looking for yeah. as an ally against the Muslims. Now, it turns out he never existed, but, you know, they looked yeah. for him in Ethiopia. They looked for him in, you know, as far east as China. I always but, theorized. Yeah, I thought, I thought there was their own version of Khidr. Oh. Um, yeah, in some I, ways, you, in some you ways know, you, you're right. Was this like apocalyptic <laughs> in their belief? Or was this like an apocalyptic belief? Like when they found this king, they would be... Yeah, it's like this messianic thing where they, uh-huh. you know, when they find this king, he's going to... Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, everything's going to be fine. They'll okay. be able to defeat the Muslims. So it's kind of like their Mahdi, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, almost, okay. I mean. Yeah, right. So, so... Um, now, they're consolidating um, the Holy Land, basically. Yeah. And how are they preparing for... Well, they're the ensuring Mongols. that the, they're often called Atabegs, right? So they're ensuring that they get the support of the Atabegs of places like Damascus and Aleppo. And, and, uh, Who are the Atabegs? The Atabegs are, again, usually Turkish or Kurdish okay. rulers. Uh, some of them were uh, Ayyubid uh, still in their loyalty. Yeah. Even though, of course, the Mamluks had displaced the Ayyubids, but still some of these... Th- and this was the problem, is the disunity, right? Yeah. And, and this is one of the reasons why Baghdad itself fell. By the Going back to Baghdad, just real quick. The shock, the reason why it only took two weeks for it to fall is because, as usual, as we often talk about, the disunity of the Muslims, right, to this day. Uh, but that was one so of the, the times... So there were no reinforcement for them? Yeah, for there was no... Re- nobody thought that, uh, you know, the that Baghdad would fall so quickly or so easily. And they thought even if, if it came under attack, the siege would last a few months. And if they need be, they could reinforce it and help them out. Nobody thought that the Mongols would be so fearsome and so effective that in less than two weeks they would attack it. And that's why it was such a shock. And also... 
That's why the Crusaders were successful too. The Mongols were successful against us and the Crusaders because the Muslims were all disunited at the time, right? So, even, so to, that's the, why even to the point they say that uh, the vizier in Baghdad, he, uh, or he didn't get reinforcements to Baghdad soon enough because he was secretly allied with the Mongols. Yeah, there's there's rumors about that too. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be certain. Uh, yeah, politics is a dirty business, right? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so they had to ensure that both the Crusaders and their fellow Muslims would actually at least, if not ally with them, would at least support them, help them resupply while they took on the Mongol threat. Now, what happened is, of course, the big Mongol that all, all of us love to hate, Hulagu again, the one who sacked Baghdad. Luckily, this was a big stroke. Now, military historians will will say that, well, Angelut, they some of them downplay Angelut because what happened is, with, with the Mongols, uh, their ruler, who was Monke, he was the, uh, at this point, he was the third or fourth great Khan, you know, yeah. the successor of Chinggis. He died all the way in Karakoram, which is, you know, like 3,000 miles away yeah. in Mongolia. So what happens is they have this thing called a Kurultai. And a Kurultai is basically like a jirga or any council. Yeah. And everybody has to be there in, at present because they, they want to actually help <laughs> nominate it, it, or like stand for. It's like their shura. Yeah, like their shura, exactly, like their shura mm -hmm. council. And you have to be there. Obviously, you can't... Uh, you, you can't make your own claim to, to be the next successor or support your support your allies unless you're there. So And all battles end too, right? When yes. When the Kurultai is yes. called. When the Kurultai is called. Yeah, and they, they have end. to yeah. justify to the Mongols why they should be yeah, absolutely. the Khanate, basically. Yeah, the, so, next, the next Khan of Khans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So luckily for the Muslims, that actually happened right then. <laughs> and uh, so Hulagu takes most of his two men. The two men were like a legion or a division, you know, about ten to 15,000 soldiers so he took most of his tumens and actually went back east yeah for the kurultai and he i believe most people say about two tumens were left so maybe about twenty thousand, which is still a formidable yeah. force but not nearly as big as it was before right so uh th this this is what the mongols had left with them but they were still told to press especially after they heard about what kuthus had done to their you know okay oh so he beheads them and he puts their heads on Spike. You know, spikes at the gates. Okay, yeah. so we can't leave that. Wait, yeah, yeah. How, how, how did this happen? When, so, when did this happen? Well, they, they learn about it, of course, through the grapevine or however you want to, you know, they, their messengers don't come back. No, I mean, I mean the, so the the, um, the emissaries reached Hutus and they gave them the ultimatum, right? This, this ultimatum, right. And uh, the emissaries were also executed by Hutus mm -hmm. and put they had to put on a, sp a spike. And this is, again, this is not... Um, traditional Muslim behavior, but this is, um, I think, a ruling that they made at that time based on the circumstances of the Mongols because it was an unprecedented event in, in history where uh, s such a force was coming. They had to show uh, some strength back and right. uh, some in, some form of intimidation back. It's In Islam, traditionally, we always protect the emissaries. They're always sacred. Um, we have to throw that out there because people might get the wrong understanding Based but the on, bum looks were like gangsters, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no rules. So, um, they executed the emissaries, and then? Yeah, they executed the emissaries, and then, like I said, they they realized that they, they don't even want to let them come into Egypt. Because Egypt is basically their last line of defense, Cairo. Right. West of Cairo, yes, of course, you have North Africa, and you still have Spain. But, you know, the, the main, the heartland of the what we call Bilad al-Sham, right. that's it. Egypt And Egypt is, after the sack of Baghdad, all that's left is Egypt. Because Damascus has already been sacked by the Mamluks and besieged by the Crusaders multiple times. So Damascus is not going to hold out 
Um, so Egypt and all, Egypt is also the source of much of the economic wealth of the Muslims. So sorry, did you say sacked by the Mamluks or the Mongols? By the Mongols. Mongols, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, me, uh, my mistake if I said the Mamluks. But um, so now they, like I said, they consolidate their power and they move into Syria because they know that that's where they want to confront them. Right. And uh, they basically they they hear about how the their force has shrunk, so that really motivates them to try to crush them once and for all. Right. Uh, it turns out not to be the last time they meet in battle. They actually fight them several times again. But the famous pivotal battle of Angeluth is when, uh, almost similar to the Battle of Hittin, they managed to draw them to this place called, you know, very, you know, historic biblical name almost, right? The Spring of Goliath, Angeluth. Yeah. And uh, they, same same deal. They managed to goad them into attacking them, attacking them. And the Mongols are always very aggressive. Yeah. They like to give chase. But they should have known because this was their own tactic, which they used many times. The Mongols' tactic yeah. was often to draw people into attacking them. So this time they had the, the tables turned on them. And the Mamluks had them attack, attack until they, they went into the wooded hills, basically, where you couldn't fight as effectively on horseback. Uh, and then, you know, they managed to surround them and uh, and crush the two Tumans that they had. And it was a total, complete victory. There was almost, uh, so I, almost I nothing there left. There were some circumstances around it too. Like I noticed that the Mamluks also used the refugees that came out of Bad Hashem to fight in the first uh, defense. And I think they, in um, their planning, they had a feeling that uh, when the battle got fierce, that they would actually retreat a little bit. And yeah. that would... And the, and the Mongols would pursue them, mm -hmm. and that's when they would. Try. So, it, in the way I imagine in my mind, it's almost like a uh, an hourglass type of thing where they would they had they were forced to narrow themselves, and then at the end, yeah. when they came out, they were able to surround them when they, they came they, out the other they end. They were very good uh, tactically. They managed to pick the pick the ground and the time and uh, of attack, and that's how they were able to defeat them. You're right. They. I think there was an epic moment them. too during so. that battle. Um, there was an epic moment I think where Muzaffar Qutb himself, like uh, I think, um, was trying to protect the ranks from being broken, and I think he made a famous statement. I can't remember it, but I think yeah, he he basically said like um, if if you turn back, uh, the religion will be destroyed because if the Mamluks uh, army could not hold this this uh, area. I think was Syria, right? No. Syria and Egypt. So yeah. if they couldn't hold it, the rest of the Muslim world was unprotected, essentially. So the Mongols would have easily swept into North Africa. So basically, his famous uh, uh, rallying cry was essentially that if you run away, all is lost. And and it, it was enough. Yeah, for people say he took off his helmet so yeah. that people people could see it was him, the Sultan himself. Yeah. And then he, he says, for Islam, why Islama? And then basically yeah. follow me. And uh, that helped to hold the line. So he rallied was about them to break. To, yeah, it was about to break their flank. And he was yeah. able to rally them that way. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, Muzaffar, uh, he protected not only the Muslim, but pretty much also Europe. I mean, if he if it would have come in from this place, uh, I mean, for sure, they would have advanced from North Africa all the way up to probably Europe. Yeah, well, of course, they, they had uh, attacked places like Ukraine and <clears throat> Poland. And even laid siege to Vienna, by the way. You know, oh wow, they'd gone as far as Vienna, and the same thing because of the cruel tie. <laughs> yeah. Vienna was saved because during yeah. the middle of the siege of Vienna, they had to go back for the cruel tie. So a, a tragic thing happens after the the Mamluks win and everything, just like we see today when Muslims do something amazing. There's another what uh, one uh, one of our friends uh, Nabil, our guest in a previous podcast, he said, like crabs in a bucket. Once one crab is getting out, 
the other crabs pull them back in. So <laughs> this is what happened. Uh, uh, by bars does well. They, they people people uh, accuse him of doing that uh, again. It's one of those things where we don't know a hundred percent. But yeah, bay bars who also fought very bravely in this yeah. battle. They were both there. Huthus and bay bars were were fighting. In fact, bay bars was one of the in the vanguard. He was one of the main commanders fighting it at Angelut. But uh, yeah, people say, of course, they he had political ambition himself. And uh, yeah, Kutuz never even really got to savor his victory as Sultan because what was it, like was two years that he was assassinated in like in 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 total rule was that a couple of years right I think it was less than yeah. two years I think it was maybe only about a year and a half yeah or, yeah that yeah so then so he was assassinated he was assassinated just like I said the the Mamluks were they had assassinated Abbasid sultans they they had assassinated Turan Shah the last Ayyubid sultan and now they were killing each other for political power you know right so yeah. so that's when Baybars. Uh, yeah. takes over as and, the next. and that you know the, just having this conversation it makes you realize that the the fiqh in each time is a little bit different and you see that mm-hmm. that not everything that we would see today and look back at the Mamluk period or any other Muslim period and you'd say oh well, that's clearly clearly wrong and um, and and to I think what I'm trying to say is, is that each setting had their own rules and Islamic is very dynamic in, in each uh, land and time and place. And I think that's something that we can learn from too. Just Absolutely. curious though, what happened to the Mongols after they were defeated in Egypt? Uh, well, they were still, of course, uh, in control of China and Central Asia, uh, you know, all the way to Eastern Europe, uh, including places like Ukraine and, uh, and Poland. That's how big they were. Um, so the Mongols, uh, they they finally pick uh, the successor to Monkey Khan, and they come back. Hulagu comes back with all his tumens, and he finds out what happens. Uh, but what happens is the the Golden Horde, now uh, that's Burke Khan, uh, he he was actually already Muslim at the time of the sack of Baghdad, and he was very upset by what his cousin Hulagu was actually his his cousin, and uh, the Mongols uh, basically and he Hulagu wants to punish. The Mamluks for what they did at Ain Jaluth. But he's not able to because his Muslim cousin uh, from the Golden Horde, Burke Khan, he actually launches an attack on him in, in alliance with uh, Baybars and, uh, and the Mamluks. So, uh, so there's a Mongol civil war that happens. And then there's uh, up to four more attempts to directly attack uh, Cairo and Egypt. Uh, they mostly fought in the area of Homs, which is a famous city in Syria, of course. Homs is also in the news these days. Uh, there were, I think, up to four battles of homes. You know, they have so many. There's a battle, you know, like uh, multiple battles on the same site. I think there were four or five battles right outside that city. And I believe uh, three of the four the Mamluks won. One of them they actually did lose to the Mongols. But but they uh, the what basically essentially happens is the, the Mamluks, to their credit, and, you know, Ibn Khaldun, we all know who Ibn Khaldun is, uh, he famously gives them the credit of uh, decisively defeating both the Mongols and the Crusaders permanently from the heartland of Islam. And and that is to their credit to this day. Uh, the last crusaders left in about 1300 yeah. and defeated finally, like I said, from their coastal cities uh, by the Mongols. And uh, and they, they, the uh, the Mamluks are able to eject uh, all the, uh, the Mongols, again, by the uh, early 1300s. Except, of course, the ones who were Muslim, like their, their golden horde uh, uh, sultanate up in... Uh, in uh, Central Asia. So, well, what was the lasting effects of the Mongols on, on Egypt um, like that we can see till today? 
Well, on Egypt itself, the Mongols themselves... No, I'm sorry, not the Mongols, the Mamluks. Oh, on the Mamluks? Well, uh, as far as lasting effect, I mean, they they uh, they had to fight them. They were their mortal enemy for their first uh, few decades. And uh, not, uh, From what I understand, like they have, still have like a lot of architecture and a lot of other contributions they've made. Um, oh, the Mam- Mamluks it, themselves? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Mamluks, of course. In, in Egypt, uh, you know, if you go to Cairo... Uh, the old city of Cairo, it's just, uh, you can't walk, you know, 10 feet without hitting, you know, the, the famous Bab Zuela to Bab al you know, of course, uh, right. all of these, uh, a lot of them were built by the Fatimids, but the actual masjids and madrasas and uh, all these complexes, many of them within the Fatimid city right. were built by the Mamluks. You know, you'll see these, uh, what they call uh, these uh, onion domes and uh uh, these famous uh, uh, madrasas that were endowed and and uh, to this day some of them the waqfs the alqaf yeah were still were first founded by the mamluks. So. so so the burning question for a lot of our listeners why did did we name the mad mamluks after the mamluks is because the mamluks were a unifying force in a pivotal period in history that as we learned from our esteemed guests. Um, they were able to consolidate power. They were able to get all these different parties together to stop the Mongols. And uh, they were not just, they didn't end over there, but they also formed a very multicultural society in Egypt where all these different people from all over the world, Europeans, uh, Oriental people, Mongolian people, all these people came to, Egypt to learn and learn from each other, grow, uh, share knowledge, share art. So all these things came to play when we were trying to decide on the name for this podcast. And um, I think the very fact that uh, that um, slaves were able to become rulers that had such an impact uh, in the Muslim world is an amazing thing because in a lot of ways right now where we are in similar circumstances where we're disunited um well we're in a pivotal period and barrage it, yeah. of attacks um maybe not physically all the time but um ideologically right definitely we're under a barrage of attacks and we find constant challenges and i think that what's interesting about the mamluks is they were able to identify uh which fights to fight and when to make a truce which is very strategic and, and something that we have to also recognize in our time because we're not going to be able to tackle every single problem right away. We have to be able to prioritize and then rally around the most important causes first and then be able to deal with the other things. And the Mamluks were great at doing that. And yeah. we see that through, through the legacy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else, Austin, that we can learn about the Mamluks for our times? I mean, it's pretty so, – I mean, Mort made a great point. I think all of us have to reflect on their impact and how – you know what we can do um, t- to make our society better. I think I think that's the whole point of this show, right? But um, you know, it's a, it's a, it, like a, it's a different beast today. It's it's not necessarily like a war of swords and you know whatnot. It's a war of the pen, yeah, you know, intellectually. Absolutely. And and I think people like you. Um, so, what advice can you give? You know, you're a pilot in your full time profession. What advice can you give the average Joe who is you know working a nine to five or you know whatever job they have? You know, as far as understanding whether it's history, sociology, I think like that, that that's what I'm getting from this show is that like, hey, you can't be 
like uh, it's very hard to be polymath, right? In yeah. The, today's day and age, you can't be like you probably don't know socially sociology or play, you know some political science, mm-hmm. but maybe you should focus on one. That's that's the vibe I'm getting from you. Find something you're interested in. And then kind of like deep dive it. Do you have any tips for our listeners once they identify, like maybe identify a passion that they want to learn about and then, you know, kind of dig in a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's part of, uh, it can become an ibadah, you know, like if you have the right intentions, then almost any activity, it doesn't have to be your ritual, the rituals of Islam, you know, your salah and and fasting and these things. We, these are ritual ibadah, but everything can be an ibadah, right? So right. Uh, we have to educate ourselves and the people around us. Both Muslim, I mean, many Muslims are so ignorant of our own history. That's why we have uh, books like Lost Islamic History. Of course, you have your previous guest about this subject. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we don't know our own history, so we're not able to uh, talk intelligently, both in terms of uh, presenting it to, uh, to non-Muslims who may be curious, and also just educating ourselves and people attack us intellectually, like you said, we're always, uh, there's an onslaught against us, you know, people think that we don't contribute to society, that we are fifth column, or that, you know, but but then people like us, all of us here, uh, and our listeners, we can tell, well, no, you too can be an airline pilot, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, we're not, uh, yeah, TSA may try to, and, and, and the airlines might try to kick you off the plane. Well, actually, sometimes the people up front in the pointy end in the front office are, are actually Muslims, too. Yeah. And uh, we, can, we, we can teach them about, uh, you know, treating us with a little bit more respect and, and uh, hikmah and uh, that yeah. speaking Arabic uh, is not a crime enough to get you booted off an airplane. And, uh, yeah. I you know, so... So, so for anyone that's interested in, in, in learning about history, uh, where would you tell them to start? Like if they wanted to start learning about this type of history and Islamic history, uh, where would you point them? Uh, I know a lot of people think uh, history is a dry subject. So if, if you don't want to read, then listen to podcasts. There's so yeah. many pod- This is a great one. There's so many other podcasts. You hear that, people? Listen yeah, to podcasts. This, this, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, if you're not able, yeah, if you think that, that uh, a book is going to put you to sleep, uh, then listen, uh, just participate online. There's so many. I mean, these days, there's really no excuse. Uh, you know, social media, you could talk, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or, you know, uh, on a blog, engage with people, you know. Uh, as far as history goes, there's a lot of, well, you know, Wikipedia is, is a funny source. It's a great source, but at the same time, you know, you can, anybody can go and edit. So, so if you see, if you see somebody saying something wrong on Wikipedia, you can approach them, or you can change it yourself, or you can tell them, hey, wait a minute, it's a little, a little too controversial and political there. Yeah. Now, from our perspective, this is what actually happened and, and try to engage them that way, you know. So, but people say that the victors are the ones who always write the history books. So yeah, sure. we can always try to. Try to even things out, even the playing field. Sure, yeah. very so. cool, man. Yeah, awesome. Jazakallah khair for coming on the show. It was a pleasure uh, sitting down with you and really picking your brain here. Um, for Thank you li- so much for having me. Absolutely, uh, and you're welcome to come back at any time. I'm sure we just talked about the Mamluks today, and I'm sure we can come have you come back sometime and talk about something completely unrelated within history. But you know, so yeah, it'd be my pleasure. You know, I, I've always been interested in like more modern day Middle Eastern history you know pre like right before the fall of the uh, ottoman empire etc so maybe we can table that for next time inshallah inshallah yeah, so for our listeners out there if you uh have any questions or comments you can email us at the at gmail.com you can also like our facebook page and follow us on twitter at the mad we are on itunes and stitcher where you can subscribe to us and if you're on itunes please leave us a five-star rating for our special guest asam ahmed and my co-host Morton Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>